You know, the world over the years has made a great thing of this day that has come to be known as Easter Sunday. And I must admit that it has changed a great deal over the past half century or so. Because Easter Sunday is no longer the great fashion show that it was in years past. Usually at this time of year, the hat shops did a booming business. How many of you remember when there were shops that sold ladies' hats and only ladies' hats? I can remember as a small boy, bored out of my mind, as my mother and my grandmother would try on hats at the Jean Hart hat shop. And I would think, okay, they're going to get one in a minute. And I would see them look at each other and mother would say, I just don't see one that just really hits me. And my grandmother would say, I don't either. Let's go to Wiseman's and see what they have. So around the corner we'd go to Wiseman's. And this poor, bored child would sit there while they tried on every hat in Joe Wiseman's department store twice. And then they would look at each other. You know, I believe I liked that third one I tried on at the Gene Hart shop best. Well, you know, I liked the ones I saw over there. So here we'd go back to the Gene Hart hat shop. It was an all-morning affair. I was never so happy of anything in my life as the day the Gene Hart hat shop closed. And yet, I look around this auditorium this morning, I don't see that many new hats being worn today. Everybody in years past had to have a new dress, new shoes, a new hat, a fresh permanent Little boys had to have new suits and their hair was oiled and slicked down and stuck to their heads so it wouldn't move. Little girls had new dresses and a new purse and absolutely the obligatory new Easter bonnet. And the men were begged to at least this one week in the year would you please shine your shoes. Well, you'd go to church. And the sermon would always focus on the risen Christ. And the crowd would always be a little bit larger than usual. And really it didn't matter what the sermon was about. Because nobody was listening. Did you see that hat sister so-and-so was wearing? That is the most hideous thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe she actually thinks that looks good. Well, what about Miss so-and-so's dress? Oh my goodness. Oh, the designer ought to be shot for that one. And it didn't matter what you preached on. Nobody heard it. They weren't listening. They were focused on the fashion show. Well, if you read the New Testament, we're actually not commanded to make a big deal out of Easter Sunday. We're told every Lord's Day to commemorate the death and suffering of the Lord through His memorial feast, which we did just a few moments ago. We're commanded to keep that feast every Lord's Day. And Jesus said in doing this, we'll show His death until He comes again. So this morning, I'm not going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. I am, however, 
And I do want us to focus on an incident that happened that day at the cross of Christ. You see, when you think about the characters associated with the cross and the death of Jesus, they're a rather motley group of folks. There are some very sinister and unfriendly and unseemly people there. Our mind goes to Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, those folks that put Jesus on trial that day. And we think of the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. And there they were at the foot of the cross Throwing dice, gambling for his garments. It doesn't say they were throwing dice, but I figured that's what they were probably doing. Gambling for the one possession Jesus had, that seamless robe. And we remember Judas, Judas that went into the garden that night and planted that traitorous kiss on Jesus' cheek. And our opinion of Peter and the others is, Really not a lot better because of their cowardice. Peter denied him. The others ran away. We think of that thief on one side of Jesus that mocked him, and we loathe and despise that man. And we see Jesus' mother and, and the other women that are there at the cross. We remember John as Jesus looked down from the cross to John and entrusted the care of his own mother to John as he died. There were some there. They weren't all like Annas and Caiaphas and the soldiers. There were some there that were full of kindness. Some that were full of tenderness. And among those kind faces at the cross was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, all of the gospel writers take note of this cultured man, Joseph. And they all deal with Joseph in a most complimentary way. Because evidently they are genuinely proud of Joseph. Our text in John 19 and verse 38 tells us, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. They have a lot of good things to say about this Joseph. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a man of wealth. He was a rich man of Arimathea. Now, They know. They're aware. Money is not necessarily a badge of virtue. The Bible never makes a hero out of a man or a woman just because they're wealthy. But unlike some in our world of the 21st century, neither does it call a man or a woman a villain because of their possession of wealth. You see, the Bible does not look upon money as either being moral or money as being immoral. It looks upon money as being non-moral because it is pent up, condensed energy. Whether it does good or whether it does harm, 
depends upon how it's used. In the hands of a bad man, it does a great deal of harm and mischief. In the hands of a good man, it can accomplish great things. The fact that Joseph was rich just means that he had a larger capacity to help or to hurt than he would have had if he was poor. But Joseph was also a man of position. Mark tells us he was an honorable counselor. He had both social and political position. He was an aristocrat. He was a blue blood, as we would say. He was a member of the council. He was a part of that court before which Jesus had been tried. But here again, we're also aware of position. And position is no more an infallible mark of greatness than is money. All you have to do is look at the halls of government in our own day and time to ascertain that fact. Throughout the centuries, little men and little women have succeeded in winning big positions. And yet, though they have won big positions, they were not made big themselves. You see, a little man is still a little man, even though he might be on the top of Mount Everest. But while position is not necessarily a mark of a man or a woman's value, it's also like money in that it is an instrument of power. Joseph, with his wealth and with his position, Joseph had an ability to be useful or harmful beyond the ordinary. You see, this man Joseph was a man of fine character. What Luke tells us about him? Luke tells us he was a good man. And Luke tells us he was a just man. And that's actually the best that's been said about him. Since he was a good man, and since he was a just man, we can count on him using his wealth as a good steward. And being a good man and being a just man, we can believe that he used his office not as an opportunity for graft and greed, but as an opportunity to serve. And that, folks, is as it should be. It's a major curse in our American life that so often we elect small-minded, crooked men and women to public office. And so often small-minded and crooked men and women use their office not to serve others, but to serve themselves. You can see this in Washington. You can see it in Austin. And you can see it on local levels all across our country. You can see it when elected officials in the halls of Washington have members of their families being paid as lobbyists for various special interest groups. 
And then you can inspect their voting record and see the bills that they sponsor and co-sponsor. And you can see how they have sold their office and sold their integrity. Joseph wasn't like that. He was a good man and he was an upright man. Rather than being a character, he was a man of character. And he was loyal to the finest faith of his people. Israel's great prophets had tried to lead the people to expect the dawning of a better day. And in spite of present evils and in spite of present injustices, the people of Israel looked to a time when all those evils and all those injustices would be history. They looked for a day that swords would be beaten into plowshares. And they hoped for a better world and they worked for a better world and they prayed for a better world. Joseph had come to share those daring dreams. Joseph had come to share those encouraging dreams. This upright, rich man of influence and power, best of all, was a disciple of Jesus Christ. One day, and we're not told when, but one day this man of wealth and power and position, this man of character and high expectations, this man had come face to face with Jesus. Imagine that meeting. One is a peasant and the other is an aristocrat. One has come from the palace, the other has come from the carpenter shop. And in spite of their differences, the aristocrat becomes a follower of the peasant. He didn't go away from Jesus like that rich young ruler and so many others of his class. Joseph actually dared to be a disciple of Jesus. And that, folks, speaks volumes to the credit of this man, Joseph. That coming face to face with Jesus Christ, he became a follower of Jesus. But in spite of the fact that he was a good man, in spite of the fact that he was a just man, and in spite of the fact that he came face to face with Jesus and was a follower of Jesus, Joseph had one conspicuous defect. Though he was a friend of Jesus, he was not the kind of friend that we want. And though he was a disciple of Jesus, his discipleship, like our own, was often faulty. Joseph was lacking in one virtue that we all admire. It's a virtue that's admired by young and old. It's a virtue that's admired by the cultured and the uncultured. Joseph was short on courage. Joseph was too timid to confess Jesus openly. Had he met Jesus alone, he would have gladly spoken to him. 
But had he been among his aristocratic friends when he met Jesus, he might have just passed him on by. The text says he was a disciple of Jesus. But secretly, for fear of the Jews. Are you listening? Folks, that is a rather damning sentence. In fact, it almost makes some of us ready to say that Joseph was not even a disciple at all. When we remember the stern warning of Jesus against the sin of being ashamed of Him and being ashamed of His words, we're prone to conclude that there really is no such thing as a secret disciple. The longer I live, the more convinced I am that being a secret disciple neither satisfies God nor man. Because to be a secret disciple, that's to make discipleship more difficult. It's being a Christian and doing it the hard way. Don't misunderstand me. To be a genuine disciple of Jesus on any terms, it involves difficulty. And sometimes in our eagerness to win recruits, we fail to face this fact. And that's a mistake Jesus never made. Jesus always said that to be a follower of Him, it meant Denial of self. To be a follower of Him meant bearing the cross. And the disciples one day said, Lord, will there be many saved? And Jesus said, strive to enter the straight gate. Joseph Joseph didn't decide to make his discipleship secret because he wanted to find the hardest way possible to be a Christian? That wasn't his goal. Joseph's ambition was actually to try to find the easiest way to be a Christian. And yet, in trying to find the easy way, he chose the hardest of all hard ways. Because you see, not only was that the hardest possible way to be a Christian, it also increased his danger of failure. That road of sacred discipleship. Beloved friends, that is a road that is littered with wrecks. You see, for me to confess my faith in Christ, that's to gain new strength within myself. If I make no open confession, then it's easier for me to fail. And keeping his discipleship secret, Joseph greatly lessened his chances of growth. In fact, what he did was he he set his feet on a path of increasing weakness 
rather than increasing strength. We don't dodge, we don't grow stronger by dodging what's hard and forbidding. We grow weaker. When we face difficulties, and when we overcome them, when we push ourselves harder to live more for Jesus and to be more for Jesus, then we grow stronger. Being a disciple in secret, Joseph greatly decreased his usefulness to Jesus. He was some, no, no doubt, Joseph no doubt was of some service to Jesus. But he was only a fraction of what he might have been. John, writing about him. John wants to paint him in the best possible light for us. He tells us that, that Joseph did not consent to what the council did to Jesus. And that was at least something. And Joseph probably told himself, well, that was enough. And then Joseph saw Jesus being led to Calvary. And as Joseph saw Jesus being led to Calvary, he said over and over to himself, it wasn't by my vote. It wasn't by my vote that sent him there. And yet, he could argue within himself all that he wanted to. He knew that to refuse to concur in evil is not enough. There are times that there are silences that are as damning as the loudest of lies. Like those times when we refuse to stand up and be counted for Jesus. Those times when we, like Joseph, are disciples of Jesus, but it might as well be secretly. Those times when we don't put the Lord first in our lives. Those times when the, when the church is not our number one priority. What does my influence say? What does our example say to others when we're able to do anything we want to do? Go anywhere we want to go. And somehow on the Lord's Day, we always come down with a chronic case of Morbus Sabbaticus. And if you don't have a medical dictionary, Morbus Sabbaticus is Sunday sickness. In spite of all the many fine qualities that Joseph had, we're disappointed in Joseph. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of fear. Now I'm going to get to the beautiful part of this story. The beautiful part of the story is this good and honorable man saw the error of his ways. And he came to the point to confess Jesus Christ before the world. 
He gathered up somewhere from deep inside of him the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And because he gathered up inside of him the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus, everybody in Jerusalem then soon knew of Joseph's open confession of Christ. And I can imagine that the news in that day and time created a bit of a sensation. I can just hear all the old tongues in Jerusalem wagging. I can hear somebody say, well, you know, I suspected that of him all along. You know, he did, he did vote against the crucifixion. I can see some of the folks in Jerusalem, some of the good people in Jerusalem, shocked that Joseph went and asked for the body of Jesus. And I can see others that were grieved and angered because this cultured, good, this cultured man, this man of power and this man of position had aligned himself with this peasant carpenter. The friend of, friends of Jesus? Well, they would have rejoiced, well, a little later when Jesus had risen. But you know what? I think the greatest joy that there was was the joy that Joseph felt in his own heart. I can hear him. I can hear him by an ear of faith as he tells others that the Master, the one he had feared to confess, had forgiven him. And in the coming years, no doubt, many came to congratulate Joseph on his great service. The great service he had been able to perform in giving Jesus such a beautiful burial in that new tomb. And yet I think that probably Joseph could never hear those congratulations without a stab of pain in his heart. It's true that Joseph gave Jesus a lovely tomb. But if Joseph had had the courage... He might have given Jesus a more loyal heart. I think probably that Joseph was enough like all of us that he never was able to fully forgive himself for the fact that he had to lose his Lord before he appreciated Him enough to confess Him to the world. You see, if you really read the story of Joseph, it's a very human story. And it's a story that's very much like our story. Often we must also lose before we appreciate. Too often we send our sweetest flowers to those who can no longer enjoy them. Too often we speak our tenderest words into ears that can no longer hear and hearts that can no longer grow warm and tender. And so today, we rejoice that Joseph became an open disciple. But the question remains for each of us to answer for ourselves. Are we an open disciple for Jesus Christ? Am I an open disciple for Jesus?
Do other people see Jesus living in me? Do other people know that we belong to Christ because of our committed life? If you're not a Christian this morning, I would beg you to respond to the great love of Jesus Christ this very day by confessing His name before me and repenting of everything that's sin in your life and being buried in the waters of baptism. Maybe you once upon a time responded to that great love. But you haven't lived openly for Jesus. You haven't let your light for Jesus shine to a world in darkness. Then I'd beg you to come back home and begin today to live like Joseph did and live openly for Jesus and not secretly for Jesus. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.